Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is May the 15th, 2019. This is episode 2439. Episode 2439 of the Survival Podcast is Wednesday. That's interview day. My special guest today is a returning guest. Had him on. Just about a year ago, maybe a little less than a little more than a year ago, I guess now, uh, his name is Akiva Silver, and uh, dude is into planting trees. How much is he into planting trees? Twenty thousand trees a year he's producing at Twisted Tree Farm, and he's been on before to talk to us about all the amazing things we can do with trees, and what trees can do for humanity and for our planet, and for our sustainability and our su- survival. Uh, Akiva's background is in survival, foraging, wilderness skills, primitive skills, and things like that. And like many of us that come from that background, he decided that, you know, one thing that the stuff's out there in the wilderness, but we as humans are horticultural, and we should be propagating this stuff. And he's built an entire business on his 20-acre homestead in New York, a nut orchard, a nursery. Uh, it's pretty awesome. And again, producing 20,000 trees a year. That man is doing his part. He's here to talk to us about that, but really what he's here to talk to us about is 10 specific trees that are featured in his new book called Trees of Power, a resource that breaks out 10 unique trees and how we can work with them as allies to build a better world. We'll have Akiva on in just a minute. Before I bring him on, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is Western Botanicals. Look, guys, we're talking about natural stuff today when it comes to trees. I am such a fan of herbal remedies. I really am. Um, the mosquitoes are bad this year. I'll be like, Jack, you said you don't get mosquitoes in your swells. Well, you get mosquitoes when it rains like it's rained this year, no matter where the water is. And so the mosquitoes have been out. You know what, though? A little comfrey or a little chickweed ointment, boom, and that mosquito bite just goes away like it was never there. Almost instantly, like about a minute, minute and a half, it's gone. And you know where you can get cool stuff like that? Western Botanicals. And everything you'll find at Western Botanicals is either wildcrafted or organically grown. They're real people that really care about you at Western Botanicals, and they give away their premium membership for free. That's 50 bucks. pays for your first year of MSB all by itself. Check them out today. WesternBotanicals.com, where if it's legal and herbal, you'll find it. Next up, ready-made resources. The company says what it does, does what it says. All the resources you need, ready-made, ready to go. Point, click, and buy on their website. You'll find it all at ready-made, ready-made resources, from the practical to the tactical, guns to gardens, and everything in between. If you could think of a superstore for everything prepping, it would be ready-made resources. Solar and wind, off-grid systems, stuff to store your food, tactical stuff, even guns, etc., It's all there, readymaderesources.com. With that, let's go ahead and get into our interview today. I want to kind of give you a heads up. I don't know exactly when I'm going to announce it. A few of you may know, but I'm announcing a new project today, and I'm doing it in Akiva's honor because we're talking about trees. It was an idea that I had all the way back in 2009. What is it? Listen to the interview, and at some point, I'll find the right place, and we'll bring it up. With that, I want to say, hey, Akiva, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. 
Thanks for having me, Jack. I really appreciate it. I'm glad to have you on. You were on a little bit less than a year ago, I think, last summer, and it was a great interview. I've got a link in the show notes so people can catch your first interview if they missed it. I think today's is going to be awesome. We're going to be talking about your new book called Trees of Power. Uh, but before we get into what you're doing now, your book, all this stuff, how did you end up in the first place, you know, with a 20-acre homestead and growing trees for a living? What, take us back, like, I don't know, you're in school spacing out or something, and, and what kind of wonky path gets you to where you are today? Yeah, um, I grew up just... Uh regular suburban childhood um, outside of Rochester, New York, and uh, nothing too exciting happened. Uh, we didn't have any uh, real relationship with the land. There was no, nobody was farming that I, I didn't know a single farmer. And, uh, you know, my mom might have planted like a couple marigolds and <laughs> we never went, we never really went camping or anything like that. Um, But, uh, yeah, and then as I, as I grew up, uh, I started getting interested in just hiking and spending time outdoors and camping. And then, uh, but then, uh, what really happened to me was I was just in a bookstore one day and I picked up the, a book by this guy named Tom Brown Jr. And, uh, he, he, uh, he has this whole crazy philosophy, but basically his whole deal is he would go out into the woods, uh, with nothing and uh and survive with the land and he he had all these practices and philosophies where he lived like really really in tune with the earth and uh he had all these stories that were just these amazing adventures and uh you know he he could he could make fires with with no matches but also with no you know he wouldn't even use a knife to carve his bow drill kit and you know he would trap animals he would touch touch a deer kill it with like a knife or a spear that he made and uh i don't know the stories were so uh exciting to me and uh when i got to the end of the book it said he has uh classes available and I was, so i right away i i i wrote a letter it was back in the days when people wrote letters and uh i, I wrote a letter and i got a registration form and i went to their class and i was really uh hooked ever since and i just got i just dove right into it And I just started devoting all of my time to learning primitive skills and wilderness survival. And, uh, just, you know, it, it, it was kind of like, it was like having real life adventures. You know, I would go in the woods, bring nothing, see if I could make it work. You know, I'd be gone for a few days or a week or something, sometimes a little bit longer. And, uh, usually I would get my butt kicked, but, uh, sometimes it would, it would work out really well. And, you know, I would, I'd gather food and make shelters and all that. Um, but, but in that process, I, like when you're trying to learn to, to hunt and trap, uh, with primitive technology, you have to, you have to really learn the habits of animals and you, you really have to learn like how to track and, and to recognize sign and, and to re observe wildlife very closely. And, uh, so I became like really, I don't know, like better skilled at it. And I would spend a couple hours pretty much every day just, just sitting in key spots, observing wildlife, uh, in, in these like meditations that, uh, I learned at Tom Brown school where you are expanding your, your eyesight, your hearing, you, you just kind of 
turn yourself on and you receive as much information as you can from the natural world. And uh, I had all these great experiences with it, but I kind of started to get a good sense, like, where are the animals? How many are in this area? Where's the birds? Like, how many are here? And uh, and and uh, on one of my camping trips, I was in this pretty incredible wilderness area, area in Pennsylvania, and there was there was basically almost no wildlife, and and I was just I was so disappointed because it was really hard to find food. I mean, we were I was with my uh, friend, and we were really struggling, and I had just come from Rochester, and there was a ton of wildlife there. There was, I mean, I would, during my morning sits in Rochester, I was seeing foxes, mink, coyotes, tons of rabbits, woodchucks all the time. There was so much to hunt and trap. But here in the wilderness, there was hardly anything. There was almost no bird song, even though it was May. And uh, that was kind of a key point for me. And I started to realize that just because uh, you leave an area alone, don't touch it and treat it as a wilderness. It doesn't mean it's going to have more wildlife. And so I started to think, well, what makes a place have more wildlife? And, and uh, more than not, it's it's humans interacting with a place and causing key disturbances. And, um, and so I, then I was just, well, how can we do this on purpose? And tree planting and seemed like the most exciting uh, practical way for me to to actually increase wildlife habitat and so I just started planting trees as much as I could everywhere I could I didn't own land back then and uh and then it, it turned into a it was just a pretty serious hobby and then and then eventually uh, me and my wife bought our house in New York State and uh we were just planning to grow food and I wanted to do a lot of hunting and just homesteading skills but uh I hated going to work, and I started brainstorming on how to make money at home. And uh, a good friend of mine, Sean Dombrowski from Edible Acres, me and him, we both uh, we both uh, were talking about uh, about it, and we started just getting heavy into plant propagation and trying to sell plants on Craigslist and stuff like that. And uh, it just grew from there. And before I knew it, I was able to quit my job and just sell trees at home. Well, that's what I've been doing ever since. Yeah, you know, you bring something up there that I, a new way of looking at a, a very well-known permaculture principle, all abundance exists on an edge. Uh, we as humans create edges. That's kind of what you're talking about. Where humans interact with nature, you get abundance. Uh, we can, of course, be very destructive, too. I mean, but when we come and we do things that are useful, and even sometimes things like the suburbs, like the suburbs, when they're on an edge with wooded land, are just full of animals and full of birds and full of things like that. So in a way, you could actually look at it and say humans are are an edge. We are an edge in the way we interact with the world, and then we can either do that in a positive or a negative way. So that's really cool, man. Um, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, it's, it's, I, I was actually, like after I really got into nature awareness and observation, I was blown away by how much wildlife is in the suburbs. It's, it's much more than I, I ever would have imagined. It was pretty much every little ditch, every little thicket, hedgerow is just crammed. And then and then there's all these yard trees that were producing enormous massed crops that just couldn't happen in a forest. And uh, but yes, the suburbs are are home to way more wildlife than I think 
99% of the people realize. Cool, man. Well, um, you've got a new book out. Uh, and it's called uh, Trees of Power, uh, looking at 10 trees we can align with and, and ally with to, uh, to make the world a better place. Can you tell us about your new book and, and how you got started writing it in the first place? Yeah, uh, I always just enjoyed writing as a... Uh, Just on the side, I always made articles for my website, and uh, and then I just sat sat down one day to write an article, and I just couldn't I couldn't really stop writing, and uh, it just spiraled from there. And I would I would pretty much put the kids to bed every night, and then I would come down and start writing, and uh, I don't know, it just kind of took hold of me, and uh, it took me a few months, and then I had a few hundred pages written out. Um, yeah, it was it was kind of weird. It almost felt like that book just kind of came came through me. I I never was thinking, oh, I'm going to write a book now. Let me plan it out. I was just uh, I was just just writing about trees and how they impact the world, and and then uh, before I knew it, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. Um, and so so the, then the idea just kind of grew from there. But I tried to highlight different trees that offer different services. For us and the world, so there's you know there's a tree that makes carbohydrates and a tree that makes oil and a tree that makes excellent timber and a tree that creates habitat and trees for medicine. So I tried to kind of cover all the different services that that trees can provide, um, but I wanted to be in depth and not just look at like a hundred different trees. So I just picked ten. Very cool. Um... Can you kind of talk about the different chapters in the book and what they're about? Yeah, sure. The first section of the book is pretty much all um, skills and uh, some of my philosophies and stuff, but uh, but it's mostly propagation skills and planting skills, uh, you know, establishing trees in the landscape, um, all the stuff I've learned along the way, and then and then pretty specifics on propagation. So there's grafting, layering, growing from seed and growing from cuttings. And then, uh, and then there's the 10 trees. There's, I should sure fucking remember it off the top of my head, but there's chestnut, apple, hazel, beech, locust, poplar, ash, mulberry, and, uh, elderberry. But, uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And, and then since I wrote it, I uh, I want to write another one now, cover like another ten or twenty trees. But, uh, yeah. Oh, and hickory, hickory's become maybe my favorite tree to work with lately. But, and you you're now doing like you're growing like twenty thousand trees a year, um, so you're running a nursery and a farm. Um, how did you, like, decide, like, this was the thing you were going to do? How did you get started, like, propagating trees in the first place? Well, I, so our farm is uh, 20 acres. It's, it's wide It was wide open when we bought it. It was just a cow, uh, horse pasture, and uh, the grass was, like, super short on maybe 19 of the acres. And I, I wanted that. I just wanted to be able to plant stuff. And, uh, and so when you... When you start trying to fill up acres with trees and you go to buy all the trees, it's, it's incredibly expensive. Um, so, uh, so I started trying to grow them for myself mostly and then I would gr grow them on the side too, um, to sell. And, uh, at first it was like, 
it would be amazing if I sold like 10 trees. I'd be like, wow, sweet. I got like, you know, $50 or something. Um, but, uh, but it just grew and grew. Uh, it really just started with Craigslist. And then I do, uh, I do tree identification walks locally. And I would meet a lot of people on those walks. Um, it, it was kind of amazing. I was doing the walks through the land, the local land trust. And, uh, at first, you know, I would do a walk and maybe five or six people would come. But, uh, but then after a couple of years, I'd do a walk and there'd be 70 people there. And, uh, you know, I'd tell them all about the trees I was growing. And, and so I was selling trees locally and that was going well, but it was going to just stay a side business forever at that point because we don't live in a huge town. We're not near a ton of people. And so I, I was making like a few thousand dollars a year selling trees back then. And then, um, and then, um, you know, whenever I would buy trees, I was always getting them not locally. I was always going through mail order nurseries because you can get way better genetics. Like I just could not find the genetics I wanted, um, for seed or, or for plants locally. So I was buying them from the mail. And then, uh, I was talking to Megan one day, my wife, and she was saying like, cause I was saying, I don't want to ship trees. And she was like, but you buy trees that are shipped. Um, like what's your, what's your problem with it? And, and I realized I actually didn't have a problem with it. And so I just, I, I built this website, um, with, with Sean's help. And, uh, and when that website went live and people could, could place orders online, I, I quit my job like a month later. And, uh, and, and so now it was like, at first it was like, oh, I a thousand trees, but I, I could sell a thousand trees, no problem on the internet. And, uh, and now I, I grow like 20,000 trees and, and I'm always, I always sell everything that I grow. So I could, I could grow way more, but I don't want to, um, because it's, it's a lot of work to, uh, to fill all the orders and keep track of everything. Cause we grow a lot of different varieties and stuff, but, but the, but what I've found is the, the market is, is so big for, for trees. There's, there's so many people planting trees around the country. And, uh, and then some other nurseries just kind of retired, like a lawyer nursery. They were growing 3 million trees a year. Lawyer is just, gone? They, they just, yeah, they, the guy, I forgot his oh, first name, sucks. Mr. Lawyer or whatever. He, yeah. He's done. And so who's going to fill that niche? That's, that's 3 million trees that nobody else is growing. And so I, now. I'll tell you, I've, bought so like thousands, black, I've, bought, I've personally bought thousands of trees from them. Well, a lot of people have, yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, so they're they're done now, and uh, and it's if you look, oh, let's say you want to plant black locust now, which is a, a really important tree, mm -hmm. and you go to get it from your state nursery, and they at least in New York State and in uh, several other states, they stop selling it because they're calling it an invasive species, so they don't grow it. Can, can now, I hold you here for just a second? It. Do you do you not find it amusing, the government referring to a plant? Growing in its native climate and native habitat as invasive, does that not strike yeah, you as odd? <laughs> it, it's it's it either uh, makes me laugh or it makes me mad, but it, it's just ridiculous. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a shame because when you look at our degraded soils and the demand for for uh, durable timber, there's no reason we shouldn't. And pollinators decline like black locust is a tree that can do so much but uh but yeah so now the state nurseries don't have it lawyer nursery is gone 
and people are looking for Black Locust on the Internet, they're finding me. And I'm just this little guy with a backyard nursery. And, uh, you know, maybe I'll have 5,000 Black Locust trees this year. And uh, But but I, I, I should have 100,000 if I wanted to meet the demand. Oh, absolutely. So, uh, I mean, I bought... It's, it's incredible. I bought four years ago from lawyers... 300 black locusts, just me on my little three-acre property. I bought 300 of them, and I've got yeah. trees now. They're they're three years old on my rocky place in Texas, which is not a great place for a tree to be. And I've got some that are, I'd say, 16 feet, and as big around as you know, bigger around than my forearm on the trunk already in three years, and not the greatest. So to me, like that's always been a tree. I thought that we could be doing a lot more with timber with. with. We're so addicted to pine because mm. it's supposedly fast-growing. Um, boy, you right. talk about the quality of lumber, though, between black locust and pine. I mean, it's it's not even close. Yeah. Um, black locust is, is really, like, on a world market, it's, it has the same quality as tropical hardwoods. And, and, and now there's all this stuff that's come out about pressure-treated lumber uh, being toxic, and so... There's a lot of people that don't want their picnic tables made out of it. They don't want their playgrounds made out of it. And and then at the same time, boardwalks and docks, boardwalks in wetlands and docks that go into lakes, mm. there, there's a lot of states that are banning pressure-treated lumber. And so what are you left with? What are you going to build your dock out of? What are you going to build this boardwalk out of or a picnic table? You either have pressure-treated lumber which is, is banned sometimes, or you have uh, tropical hardwoods, which have all kinds of uh, problems. They're being so expensive and uh, sustainable issues. So black locust is a logical answer. And so the demand for the lumber, not, not talking the seedlings, the demand for the lumber is so big. And so now people are putting in plantations of black locust uh, on a pretty big scale. Wow. Um, yeah. That's awesome. I Because mean, I remember being a kid. I grew up just south of you in central Pennsylvania. And we were big into hunting, fishing, all that stuff. And I remember one day being a kid, I didn't really know anything about black locusts other than that's a black locust. And uh, we were on a farm that we used to hunt, and we were talking to the farmer. And this guy had to be in his 60s if he was a day old. And we were talking about the fence. Yeah. And he said, yeah, them fence posts. He said, my daddy put those in before I was born. And I, that stuck with me for the rest of my life. That a piece of wood stuck in the ground in the in you know the wet fertile region of Pennsylvania could be sixty years old or more, and still be there. Yeah. Because I think you correct yeah. me if I'm wrong, but I think the tree is something like it's like sixty percent uh, fungicide is what is what the thing's made out of. It just doesn't it doesn't break down. What's odd is I found that you know that's true when they're mature, but like if you cut like the branches and twigs off, like if you're pruning them, those tend to break down. Mm -hmm. It's a weird thing to me. I don't really get it, but it's how it works. Yeah, well, there's um, they make the heartwood and sapwood, and so if you were to cut a black locust tree down and look at the cross-section of the rings, you'd see this, uh, most of it is this yellow heartwood, and then the outer wood is this white sapwood. Okay. So the branches and twigs haven't developed the heartwood yet, and the, the sapwood has no rot resistance at all. Um, but the, the heartwood is is really where the the money's at. Um, but yeah, our farm, uh, it was uh, they had cows and horses here for a long time, and the the old fence line, um, the, the all the posts are still there, and I I cut a bunch of them open to, to check them out, and because uh, um, anyway, I'm just curious about things, but. Uh, about half of them are black locusts, and the other half are chestnut. 
Mm. And uh, they're, they're all, like, pretty solid still. I don't know how old they are, but they're at least 60 years old. It's amazing. It's amazing. So what do you, you – know, you, you're producing 20,000 trees a year. You said, I don't want to do it anymore. And I, I totally understand that. There's people like, well, why don't you add this to it? You're like, no, I'm done. Uh, what do you spend? <laughs> you know, there is a point where you're like, you know what, I have enough now, and there's room for other people to do things in the world. And I'm content, right. right? So what do you spend most of your day with your nursery doing? What's an average day like for you? It's really different every time of the year. Um, you know, the, the first two weeks of April, I didn't do anything except pack up orders um, and answer emails. Um, and then uh, and then as soon as that was over, I was able to start planting the nursery. Um, and so we're pretty much pretty much finished planting it right now. But uh, we spent, I don't know, maybe three weeks uh, working on that all the time. And so we're planting seeds, cuttings, and uh, little transplants. And then um, that was that was just all the time. And then now I'm just kind of mulching and maintaining it. Um, I'll start doing uh, – it, it really changes. Sometimes there's hardly anything to do. Like during the summer, I might just spend an hour to – an hour or two a day down in the nursery, just kind of checking on things, pulling some weeds, maybe playing around with softwood cuttings. Um, and then uh, as the season progresses and it turns into like late summer, I start collecting seed all the time. Um, I, I go all over the place. A lot of people think that I uh, have all the seed on site, all the cuttings on site, but no, I just, I just go everywhere. Um, I, I've been, observing trees everywhere I go for a long time. So I have good maps in my head of where do I, where do I collect, you know, heart nuts or hazelnuts or I, I just, or mulberries. I just have good trees mapped out over the years. And uh, so I, I do a lot of uh, seed collecting um, because I don't just have to collect seed for our uh, nursery. I also sell seeds. So um, I, I spend a lot of time collecting in the fall. I, I'm pretty much, collecting every single day uh sometimes for the whole day um and then in the winter there's not very much to do at all um i i just uh i just hang out with the kids a lot and uh i, I i'll graft trees or i'll collect cuttings get them stored but uh in the winter sometimes i i take a few weeks off and don't do anything at all uh maybe some writing um, and then it's back to spring and it's, it's planting i guess forgot to say in the fall we also dig up the the whole nursery so we we uh harvest all the trees get them out of the beds and stuff bare root them get them ready for yeah. shipping right yeah so that so that when spring hits and and i have to fill all those orders i can just oh this guy got a hundred chestnuts this one got five plums or whatever i can just grab stuff and pack it up really fast i don't have to dig it out of the ground too Awesome, man. So do you do pretty much all your shipping in spring then? I do a, a fall shipping season too. Okay. And, uh, which I really appreciate because, uh, well, it lightens the load for me, but, but as a, as a grower, like when I would buy trees, I would often want to get stuff for the fall, but I wouldn't be able to. And I never understood why. Uh, but now I realize it's because a lot of these nurseries are in warmer climates. And so, Their trees don't even go dormant until January, um, but for us, I, I start digging trees in October, and uh, um, it's I like fall planting a lot, and I think a lot of my customers do as well.
Well, I do, and the ironic thing is it's so much harder for a nursery where I am to do a fall shipment, because like you said, the trees don't go dormant. The converse, right. though, is it's so much more important for survival of the tree for me to plant in fall than it is for someone in the north, because we go from yeah. it's kind of spring to ah, it's the Mojave Desert and now everything's going to die in about five and a half minutes, right? right? Like It's like, hey, it's pretty nice, yeah. 78 degrees, and you go in the house and you walk back out and go, what happened? It's like 109, hasn't rained in three <laughs> weeks. So when oh, you're putting yeah. that, that young tree out in our spring, it is not happy when it's just getting over shock and then, you know, that, that heat comes in. So I love planting in fall. In fact, yeah, cause... I, I'd say I get about, now that I've gotten the property a little bit better than it was six years ago, I would get about I get about eight eight out of ten trees when I plant trees survive if they're planted in the fall, and I'm still at probably a fifty fifty ratio if I plant in the spring, and it's that big of a yeah. difference. And if you're planting a hundred trees, that's a lot of trees. Yeah, I think I think it, it does make a big difference, especially in a warmer climate than ours. Um, but I, I noticed that we had uh, to, to me it was a big drought. But I'm sure to you it's nothing. Um, but like three years, three years ago, we had a really dry summer, and the grass turned brown, which I've never seen happen. And uh, it, it, I'm telling you, it's not like Texas here, up here; yeah. it rains all the time. But yeah. uh, it was really dry, and all the trees that I had planted in the, the fall beforehand did fine, and all the trees I planted in the spring were just crap. They were just dying. And uh, I think what like over the winter they they have a chance to settle in, and then when spring does hit and it's all wet and muddy, they're already there and they're they're putting feeder roots out and they're getting sunk in, uh, as opposed to getting plunked in right before it gets hot. So yeah, yeah they're kind of you dropping help. them in there, and they're like, oh, and they're just trying to get roots down about the time that they, it goes dry and hot. Or like you're saying, they're sitting there, they're waiting as soon as that temperature comes up enough to start growth, the, everything's ready to go, the tree's settled in, and it maximizes every bit of that. Uh, I've also been told that, like, so when you prune that tree, it, it's dumped, when it's gone dormant, it's dumped all the extra energy it had when it let those roots go, or when it let the leaves go into its roots. So it's sitting there all charged up, ready to go, and it gets to start, at, it's this, it, it gets to decide through its innate intelligence when it's going to actually, you know, start to bud out and grow, etc., where when you're getting it in the spring, you're probably well past when it would have done that on its own, even in a northern climate, I would imagine. Yeah, I, I think you really hit the ground running with a for the fall planting um, when that spring does come. Yeah. So uh, you're using um, air prune beds. Can you talk about what that means? Yeah, uh, I do. I use them for two reasons. Uh, what they are is just a, a box with. Uh, the bottom of the box is hardware cloth, which is, you know, like a, a metal, a very, uh, it's a metal fence with very small holes, like quarter inch holes. And, uh, so that allows excellent drainage. And, uh, so it's just a box with this wire on the bottom and, uh, and it's propped up above the ground. And you, you plant seeds in these boxes and the root of the seed will go down, down and it'll hit that hardware cloth and then it'll hit the air. And as soon as it hits the air, the tip of the root dies. It's pruned by the air. And uh, the rest of the root responds by branching out. So if you were to go up to just any old tree and you just cut the top off, all the side branches are going to erupt. You know, it's going to it's gonna have all this lateral branching. 
Um, the same thing happens underground. You cut the tip of a root off, then the rest of the root is going to bush out. And so I grow a lot of nut trees like hickories and walnuts and uh, other taprooted species like pawpaws. And uh, the when the taproot, um, it's really hard to transplant. And so if you just grow like a hickory in a in a nursery bed and then dig it up, the root just looks like a, it looks like a carrot. You know, it's just a straight taproot, and it's really hard to get the whole thing. And they don't transplant well. Taproots just really don't transplant well. But if you if it's grown in an air prune box, you actually it looks more like a ball of hair. Like it's just so many lateral roots, and they transplant really really well. Um, they're also easy to to move out of there instead of trying to dig up a root that's like straight and two feet deep. You're just pulling up this, you know, maybe 18 inch root system that uh, you can just lift it right out of, the, out of the box, and it's it's just it's amazing. It's just all these root fibers. Um, so I grow them in air prune. I grow a lot of trees, not not even close to all, but I grow a lot of trees in air prune boxes because of the taproot issue. And then the other reason is r- rodents. Like I'm growing a lot of nuts, and so mice, chipmunks, is the pressure so high. And I'm able to protect things better in boxes that are raised off the ground than I am in stuff that I just plant right in the dirt. Well, that makes perfect sense because they got to get up and in and whatever, and that's their natural home yeah. when you're down there in the dirt. I remember. Right, uh, and it, you can build lids for them too. So. Awesome, yeah. I mean, Steph, Stefan Sobekayak, the Miracle Orchard guy from Canada, he said something like his first year – you know, where he'd gotten the orchard off the ground, but almost every tree he would have propagated for the next season was destroyed by rodents at the end of that first year mm. before he got wow. it on the ground. And that sucks, man. So, yeah, that's, I didn't even think that that would be uh, an advantage as well. Um, it definitely makes them easier to plant. I mean, that, that's, that's something else, too. Like, when you have, you know, that kind of a root ball that you're talking about it makes in a smaller tree it makes things a lot easier for the person putting them in the ground um there's a lot less concern uh, a lot of times you know you get trees that and when they're bare root it's never concerned but a lot of trees people get like in box stores or from nurseries we buy direct go pick them up they're in pots and you know you get the circling girdling roots and you got to pull them out and everything and what you're talking about put them in the ground don't plant them too deep and, and rock on yeah, yeah, it works. It's been working really well. I got the idea from an old uh, nut grower at a there's like a New York Nut Growers Association, and this old timer was telling me about it. So I tried it one year, and I couldn't believe how much nicer the trees looked. I mean, the stems were. I, I did it with a bunch of walnuts that first year and butternuts, and the stems were were twice as thick as as I'd normally seen, and uh, they just transplanted so well. And so so now I just kind of went with it, and I've got lots and lots of air prune boxes all over the property it's kind of cool you can just put them anywhere too you can you know you can set them up in like part of a driveway or or uh you know you don't need like a a nice spot at all you can do it anywhere with this when you're doing this what's kind of your production per you know per per bed i mean how big are the beds and like how many trees can you produce because i think when people think about producing trees they think on a much larger scale than you really need because we're producing, you know, what, one-year whips or something like that, right? Right. It depends what you're growing. If you're growing, like, big landscape trees, ball and burlap, that's not what I'm doing. Uh, I'm sure you need much more room. Uh, I'm growing the oldest trees in my nursery that I ever grow are three years old, but most stuff is one or two years old. And uh, 
So the the boxes I grow, the the, the air pruning boxes I have, they're they're all different sizes. Some of them are um, three feet wide and uh, twenty feet long, and in in one of those I'll get close to a thousand uh, trees, um, and then I have other ones that are just these little. They're like the size of a shoebox, and they're really easy to move around, and and they're nice for keeping different varieties straight. Um, but but in one of those shoe boxes, I might um, sometimes I just pack them. Like I'll just dump a whole bunch of chinka pins in there, and uh, they'll I'll, I might put like a few hundred chinka pins in there, and then and then I'll have to transplant them out of there after one year into another bed, um, so they can size up a little bit more. But uh, but a lot of those shoe boxes, I might just get like with 20 nice trees out of um and then uh, like a, a normal bed that's not an air prune will just be a four foot by 20 foot bed and uh, say like chestnuts or something and i'll get maybe like 150 not nice trees out of it and then maybe 50 or 60 more that are undersized that need a second year so i mean the upshot from all of that is that people that are looking for something they want to do um you're, you're, they're not going to they're not going to impact your business um, there's plenty of room in the space, and you don't need as much space as people would think to produce, you know, thousands of trees every year uh, and 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 ship them. And we need more people doing it, right? I mean, like you specialize in certain varieties, and there's probably others that are, you know, that have tremendous opportunity as well. Yeah, I think there's a, a lot of room for other people. I I I mean, I. I teach propagation classes. I have free articles and videos. I show people what I do. It's all open source because I'm not worried about competition. Um, I think the biggest thing, you know, yeah, obviously it's important. It's exciting to talk about how to figure out, like, how do you grow this stuff and, you know, um, and the, all the propagation stuff. But really, if you're going to start propagating a lot of trees, you kind of want to know who's going to buy them. Um, like when I started, I had no idea and no plan. And I, I remember having times when I would look around and be like, oh, I have all of these trees and I don't know what to do with them all. Like <laughs> I just planted as many as I can and I still got 500 sitting here and I would, I would feel really bad. If, like I wouldn't want to waste them. Um, so it's nice if you, if you can, uh, slowly develop your market as you, as you grow, you know, you might want to start small and then once you figure out who's going to buy them, who's your customers, then you can grow more and more, and eventually you'll you'll find those customers, and then you can just kind of grow as many as you want. Awesome, man! So, you know, we have we have a good question for you here. I kind of personify it. There's people say I have terrible soil, you know, and and you can grow trees in what people would consider terrible soil. Certainly, soils that you wouldn't want to farm corn in for sure. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So. I guess it depends. Like, are you talking about growing trees in a nursery or growing trees in a, their permanent location? And then, and then the other thing that it really depends on is when you say terrible soil, is that just saturated, wet swamp land or is it, um, you know, just heavy clay or is it sand or, uh, and then, and what kind of trees, right? Um, so, I mean, I guess it, the short answer is like for the nursery, I think, you need to have really loose, friable soil because it, unless you're growing in pots, if you're growing in the ground it, and then you want to transplant trees out of there, if it's not deep, friable hmm. soil, you're going to have a really hard time transplanting. Um, 
and and the root systems are going to look like crap. You're, you're going to feel bad selling them to people. Um, so so my my nursery soils, the soil in my nursery is is very deep. Um, I add to it every every year, every fall and every spring. I'm always putting mulch and compost down. Um, not in that order, but uh, it gets it gets pretty nice like year after year. And and so now I can you know there's there's beds I can just reach in and pull up pull a burdock root out with with one hand and it'll have you know i'll pull with two feet of root out and it's it's that loose and and uh, nice and so when i go to transplant trees out of it it's 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 a, it's a joy it's not hard at all it's not tons of rocks and heavy clay or anything like that but then like establishing trees in the landscape is like a whole other story yeah i mean because that that's one of my things that really makes me push trees on people so hard is that where you think you can't grow stuff you can i trust me if i can grow trees here you can grow trees where you're at just about guaranteed like all the problems you mentioned you know you said depends on the kind of tree and that's one of the things well what tree grows in that environment uh and then you mm. know we can do things if it's too wet we can raise things up trees trees are hydraulic pumps if you have a really wet area and you plant enough trees that will survive they will help as they mature to mitigate that that soaked land and they'll they'll take a lot of that water up into them because they need it so there's a lot of ways to right. handle that and i just think that it's i've seen trees grow places where you're like i don't i don't understand like we have such yeah heavy limestone here and there's a nature center about two miles from here my my wife and i hike and i've seen trees where some of the rock outcrops and it's literally like a rock cliff And a tree is growing, like, it's attached to the rock. It looks like some kind of crazy bonsai, except it's like a 70-foot friggin' wide oak uh-huh. or something like that. And it, so, to me, trees are the things that eventually eat enough rock to build soil. I mean, that's that's really one way to look at it. I've seen, uh, there was a, I don't even remember what the point of the documentary was, but I just thought it was interesting. It was while I was at Permaculture Voices, I think the second one, and it was about the dilapidated buildings in Chicago. And there were, like, five-story buildings with, like, trees growing on the roof and the roots, like, going down through the building and eating the concrete away. And I was like, you know, we really can grow trees just about anywhere if we just are a little bit creative with how we do it. Yeah, there's a really good uh, video. I mean, I've seen trees growing on cliffs here, too. We have a lot of gorges. It's all shale. It's it's not it's the opposite of limestone but the, the trees are right in the cliffs but uh but when you were talking it made me think of this uh documentary uh this this guy made this whole series called woodlanders and he goes around the world looking at people who work with trees and in in one of the episodes he's in corsica and he's looking at these these thousand year old chestnut orchards and and when you see the spot it's, it's crazy there's there are these these mountains in corsica and there's no There's no grass. There's nothing. It's just rocks because it's so dry. It, it, I think it must never rain there. It's so dry. And these thousand-year-old chestnut trees are just fine with it. You know, I, I, they must have incredibly deep root systems. But, uh, but yeah, you, you, can grow, you can grow trees just about anywhere in the world, I think. What are some of your favorite trees to work with, Akiva? Uh, like I was saying earlier, I think hickory is becoming... Uh, very uh exciting tree for me that uh, i've been doing more and more with um and and there's uh there's there's many different species of hickory 
and they have a, a pretty wide range across the country. Um, so around here, we have uh, three main species, shagbark, pignut, and bitternut. And uh, the shagbark hickory is the one that has the best flavor as far as the kernel goes. Um, so I, and, and they're wild. They're just, they're just all around here and they'll be in people's yards or up in the woods. And, and some of these shagbarks in people's yards are 200 years old easily. They're just gigantic old, old trees and they'll be 70, 80 feet tall. And in a good year, they'll have nuts stacked from top to bottom. And, and when they dump their crop, you can't even see the ground. It's so many nuts. And, uh, and you know, it's a huge canopy too. It's like a huge radius. So you could just, you could just fill trucks and trucks with hickory nuts down here some, some years. And, uh, so I, I've been using those nuts. Uh, we, we crack them out for the kernels. And then, um, and then the other thing we've been doing with them is we've been making milk and, uh, we, we built like this, uh, this, this steel mortar and uh wooden pestle and we we pound the nuts in that and uh boil them and we make uh nut milk it's it's kind of like almond milk but it's way better and uh we've been serving it at festivals and stuff because we we'll, we'll cook it right on site at the festival and uh if it's a chilly day in the fall or winter it's so nice it's like it kind of looks like coffee um but it's hickory milk and uh it's just great you can add maple syrup to it or whatever it's an awesome product I had a guy from uh, who owned the coffee shop came and he he was man he wanted to to buy that product. Uh, I had my hands full, but it would be a really cool uh, business opportunity for somebody that wanted to to work with a with a wild tree crop like that. But uh, but then I got I've always been intrigued by hickories. Just you know, the wood is so excellent. Um, they, they're just incredible trees. But uh, but then this like uh, maybe two years ago. I was lucky enough, I met uh, Sam Thayer, this wild food author, and he came here and he brought some hickory oil. And uh, so what he was doing, he's taking bitternut hickory, which is this species that I always just ignored because the nuts are so bitter, they're disgusting, you can't eat them. So I just ignored that as like, oh yeah, it's a hickory tree, but those, they have terrible nuts. And uh, he said, no, 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 the bitterness is water soluble in the oil has this same flavor as shag bark and I trade this tr- tasted this oil it's it's and as I don't know if I said this but shag bark hickory is the best flavor of any nut I've ever had I mean it's better than like pistachio or cashew or or anything like that it's, you know it's it's like a, it's like as it's at least as good as like macadamia or pine nut it's a really good nut um so the oil is it's it's awesome and the bitter nut hickories that are around here are just these massive massive trees and uh so anyway he showed me this oil and he said if you if you get me some bitter nuts i'll run them through my press so uh i said i know where some bitter nuts are and i went there's these two trees uh just a mile from my house and i collected uh i think i filled about a rain barrel so about 50 60 gallons worth of nuts and i and i brought those to him and he and this is nuts in the shell and bitter nuts have a really thin shell like the shag bark and the pig nut and uh, Macronut, they all have like a really thick shell, but the bitternut shell is so thin you can just kind of crush it with your hand. Um, it's like an acorn shell. It's thin enough that he could run it through his oil press without cr- without cracking and picking out the nut meat. And so he just put all those nuts through, and he got seven and a half gallons of oil. Um, and that was, you know, we collected nuts for two days. Uh, just me and uh, my friend came for a couple hours, and uh, 
just that little bit of work, and we had over seven gallons of like really high quality cooking oil. So uh, now I'm pretty excited about uh, bitternut oil. Um, I don't want to call it bitternut oil uh, at all, but uh, that's the name of the tree right now. But uh, but yeah, so now a group of us, a group of friends here, we're forming a co-op and we're going to buy a, an oil press this summer, I hope, uh, and start making uh, local hickory oil. But that just seems like an industry that has to happen. Well, it makes a lot of sense with the, the sheer volume that's there. Um, you grow a lot right, of stuff, and, too, though. No, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, it's, it's like the sheer volume, but also, like, you don't even have to plant anything. Like, you don't have to do anything. It's already there. It's just, you know, it's, it's a given. So. Yeah, and also, like, so one of the things that you realize when you, you know, look at things like hunting from a much broader viewpoint than you know, from a PETA viewpoint, is that when you have a, a wilderness area or you have a, 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 a an edge area that hunters use for game, it becomes more valuable and therefore it becomes more protected. It's less likely to be bulldozed. There's there's funding. There's a there's a resource. People like it. People protect it. So if you have these huge stands of hickories that have been there for hundreds of years, and all of a sudden now they represent a crop. Well, now they're more yeah. likely to be protected and more likely to, to, to be sustained rather than harvested just for timber. Yeah, absolutely. Because that's what, that's exactly what I think about about these trees. Um, they're they're almost they're a floodplain species around here, and so they're growing. Uh, floodplain it's, it doesn't sound as bad as it is. It's just alluvial silt soils, and uh, they're they're growing in on the edges of these of farm fields. And so what incentive does a farmer have to keep it there and to just not have a little bit easier time getting his tractor around and plowing everything? And uh, so I collected 60 gallons in two days from these two trees. I, there was so much more. Like, the, I, could, I just didn't have time. But there was at least 10 times that. And uh, the guy stamped there, he, he buys the nuts, and he'll buy them from collectors. And he pays $20 a gallon. So in two days... I could have made twelve hundred bucks um, just picking up nuts off the ground. So, and what if I would have picked them all up? You know, it could have been several thousand dollars. And so, I think if a if a farmer or somebody, a landowner knows, oh, there's five thousand dollars worth of nuts just falling on the ground there, they're less likely to just cut cut a tree down or or you know, it's, it becomes much more valuable. And you work with, I was going to get to the, you work with a lot of other trees as well. Apples, that's like one of the main trees featured in your book, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, apples is one that I do a lot with. Um, so there's, there's kind of a lot of different ways to look at apple trees around us. There's this cider industry that's um, become really popular. Um, you can almost find bottles of hard cider almost as easy as you can find bottles of, of wine now. And, uh, and so the, um, you can, you can sell apples to these cideries without too much difficulty in, in our area, at least. I don't know about the rest of the country, but it's definitely like a growing industry. Um, so like when I think of apples, I think of it as so many different facets to it. So there's the cider industry and then there's, then there's the fresh fruit industry, you know, the big, large, sweet, pretty-looking apples. And then, and then there's the processing, and um, like applesauce and and dried rings and stuff like that. Um, but then, and then there's just the 
and then there's vinegar, and then there's just wildlife. And I think, uh, for me, I actually, uh, you know, for our house, I'll make applesauce and I'll dry tons of apples and make fruit leather and stuff like that. But commercially, um, I, I was selling the cideries, but I can only do so much with my time. Um, so mostly I'm just selling trees and grafting trees, but then uh, I really started to get pretty excited about growing apples for wildlife um, because they have such a dramatic effect on uh, wildlife habits. They'll, they'll just bring them in. It'll bring in so many different kinds of animals. And then and then there's apples that ripen, you know, starting in July is the first ones with uh, this variety called Pristine. And it goes all the way through all of, you know, you can have apples dropping from July, August, September, October, November, all the way until April. And uh, that's, that's incredible to me. You, you can be uh, providing that kind of uh, food almost, ha- you know, over half the year. So I, I don't know. I started getting really excited about all the different crabs, apples that fruit in the winter, and uh, noticing them all around wherever I go, and collecting plant material from them. That's awesome. I, I I can't remember which book it is. I have quite a few books on apples, but there was one of them that talked about how like it was basically the the tree that helped build America. That when people started settling. They would take apple seeds with them, and they would just, you know, when they got their 40 acres and a mule or whatever, they would just, you know, take an acre and plant apples from seed. And then over time, they would right. select, like, this this tree ends up being an apple that makes cider. This tree ends up being an apple that makes vinegar. This ends up making a, a dessert apple. This makes a storage apple. And there were all these apple orchards, both, you know, privately owned and larger commercial operations everywhere. In fact, um, that same book, again, I can't remember which one it is, but it talks about how, We think of prohibition as, you know, putting all these breweries out of business. But the reality was that Americans drank a lot more ciders and wines than they did beer prior to prohibition. Prohibition, And mm. so when prohibition went away and all of these apple orchards had cut the trees down to grow something else because they had to make money, you know, it was much easier to get a grain crop up and ready for filling that niche uh, or even, you know, grapes back going into venting and winemaking than it was to grow trees, especially at the time too large enough to be productive enough. And that's really what like killed that industry uh, was prohibition. And it didn't have the resiliency um, to come back, especially considering that we, you know, ended prohibition right in the middle of the great depression. So, like, you know, you had to make what you could while you could and in the middle of Dust Bowl and everything else. But I've always found that interesting, like, the, the historical role that apples played in America, and that's just something they don't teach you about in school for one reason or another. Yeah. No, I mean, it's it's interesting to see that the cider industry, I mean, that was, like you're saying, it, that was what people drank. I, I've even read that pioneer families, they didn't, they couldn't, they didn't always have good water um, because of... Uh, You know, it, it could be, you know, animal feces or whatever in it. They didn't have clean water, and so they were, they, people drank cider. Mm. That, like, that was normal. You just drink hard cider. Even the kids is, was what I was reading uh, in one place. But, uh, um, but yeah, and then the other thing was you're saying they, they had apples for, for, you know, all these different purposes, cider and vinegar. Uh, but they also, all of, all of the apples could feed pigs, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, There's always a use for for them. And, uh, that's that's how I feel about it. It's like, yeah, some apples are pretty weird and bitter and funky, but 
deer seem to not care at all. Deer will eat them, pigs will eat them, and uh, yeah, it's kind of the the worst tasting eating apples makes some of the best cider. It's it's if you think about it, it's not different than grapes. I mean, do, when's the last time you right. were at the market and they had a big bunch of Chardonnay grapes? Right, no, right. People don't eat Chardonnay grapes. Looking, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're looking for bitter tannins and yeah, and acid and balance yeah. and yeah. Yeah, even if you're right. using a relatively decent eating apple to make cider, you always want some of those bitter tannic to create balance. A lot of people use crabs and stuff like that for them. Um, you also do. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. I was just gonna say the other thing about apple trees is they're just they're just survivors. They're yeah. just at least around here, they are tough trees that can take a tremendous amount of abuse. They can get browsed all the time, like all year round, and they'll still just hang on and just 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 branch out and they'll just keep working it and they, they get run over or chopped down and they'll live for a hundred years they're they're so resilient but yeah what were you going to say no i was gonna say you you also do uh propagation classes can you talk about that a little bit yes i do two main propagation classes one i do here at the farm every spring it's just a weekend workshop um, and that usually fills up pretty fast because I can't have a, too many people at once. Um, and then I do an online one called Abundant Propagation. And that one is, uh, people can sign up anywhere in the country. I can't, I don't send plant material overseas, but anybody in the United States can sign up. And, uh, and the way it works is as the uh, different seeds are ripening over the season, um, I send them out to people. So as I'm collecting stuff, I, I I'll send, uh, participants in the class, they'll get like a packet of seeds with instructions and sort of like uh, coaching to go along with it. And uh, and so people who sign up for that class, they, they might, I can't remember the exact number, but you can grow about 20 different kinds of trees in the class. Um, but you also learn the principles for growing many others. Um, and it's just a, it's just a nice way for, for people to to kind of get started with propagation, you could you could basically build like a small nursery out of the class. Um, it's it's a few hundred dollars, and hopefully at the end of the year you actually wind up with you know several hundred trees. Um, but uh, yeah, and then uh, and then I just built a, a forum for it. I'm not like super handy on a website, but uh, I made a forum so the people in the in the class or people not in the class, it's free. Anybody can go in this forum and, and see, like, how are other people doing it, what successes and challenges are, are people having. Um, but that's been, like, really great for me to, like, realize, like, how many people actually want to be propagating trees. And it's because I can't grow enough. And then I'm just sending these seed packets out all over the place now. And, and there's cuttings that go in it, too. And it's cool. You hear people write back later and they're like, look what I got going on. It's like, wow, it's it's uh, it's amazing. It's like we're bombing the world with trees right now. That's awesome. And I think it's something people really, if they're going to be, you know, if they don't want to do it for a business or it doesn't matter, if you want to you know, kind of be a homesteader type and you have a property that's anything more than a suburban backyard and you want to plant trees, it's almost foolish to not learn propagation techniques because whether you're selling it or just not spending it, it's to me it's like printing money. Right, so like I can either go buy a hundred trees or I can go make a hundred trees, and then I don't. And you just... can go ahead. I, I'm sorry, I have a bad habit of interrupting people. No, that's okay. But uh, I was gonna say, and you can 
too is the genetics. You know, when you're when you're propagating, you're taking things in your own hands. You, you can look at a, you can find trees growing in the wild or in a, a park or a yard, and you can say that is the tree I want to propagate instead of relying on like Stark Brothers or somebody to to make those choices for you. Absolutely. Um, and then I think like another thing that comes from that skill set because we've had a lot of people writing about doing this is. You know, everybody has that family member that passes away, and there's this, you know, giant pear or apple or whatever it is in the backyard. And for one reason or another, the family can't keep the the property; it gets sold off at the, you know, the end of that person's life as part of an inheritance or whatever. And being able to go out and take, you know, scion wood off of that tree, for instance, and making grafts or taking seed and propagating from that tree, and then, you know, I've had people that do this, and they'll have like. They'll make a couple trees for every member of the family, so that if one dies, they still have one. And then everybody's got this tree growing on their property that came from this tree that you know great grandpa grew or something. And, and like that, right. that's, that's a skill that that has almost a priceless value to it. Yeah, it, it's really cool to see like stories with plants. So I mean, I have pretty much every buddy who's been gardening for a while, and, and not just annual gardening, but planting trees and shrubs. You walk around with them, and, and they can remember. Oh, yeah, I got this from this person, or I got that tree from that nursery. Or there's there's always these stories that that uh, go along with it. But it's really cool if you can create your own, and you're like, yeah, I, I found this. You know, I was on this camping trip, and I found this crazy service berry that was just ridiculously loaded. And I, I took some seeds, and look, now I have uh, trees from that. And it's it's a it's very empowering, and it's it's cool to be able to have those stories with your plants. So let's talk a little bit about carbon cycle. That's something everybody gets all concerned about. Uh, how can tree crops affect the carbon cycle? So the uh, carbon cycle has been going on for forever, at least since the Earth's been around. And it's just a it's just a very basic thing of there's carbon in the atmosphere. Plants drink it, and then uh, they put it into their bodies then their bodies decompose and it floats back up into the air and it just goes round and round like that. Um, and well, what happens with uh, what's happening now is with tillage of the soil. When you take a shovel or a nine bottom plow and you open up the earth, the soil mixes with oxygen and all this carbon uh, floats into the atmosphere. Um, it's CO2. It's it's much lighter. The more you mix the carbon in the soil with oxygen, the the lighter it gets, and it floats away. And uh, so there's actually people who are scientists who are debating what is uh, causing more carbon in the atmosphere. Is it tillage or transportation? And because we're we're tilling such large tracts of land, you know, millions and millions of acres are getting turned up. And uh, so if we actually want to like put carbon back in our soils whether you're a corn farmer or a chestnut farmer or just a vegetable gardener everybody wants carbon in the soil it's the most basic fundamental aspect of good soil is is high amounts of carbon and that's the organic matter that's the black stuff that that's what holds the water that's what holds the nutrients um and so if we're growing our crops as annual crops then we basically have to erase the soil open it up to get those seeds in and whenever we do that we're losing a lot of carbon and so tree crops are are the opposite they basically lock it all down so instead of having our soils wide open and vulnerable to all this carbon volatilizing into the air the trees 
allow us to keep everything covered. And so, uh, so I see tree crops as a very logical way forward. Whether you believe in climate change or not, you probably believe in droughts and you probably believe that uh, in flooding and stuff, you know, extreme weather events. And if we can keep our soils high in carbon, they're way more resilient. They, because the carbon, it doesn't just like hold moisture. It also drains really well. It's full of capillaries. So there was this, uh, it's, it's not about tree crops, but there's this farmer in North Dakota that I was uh, watching a video of, and he, he was using uh, mob grazing, you know, dense grazing of cattle to increase the carbon content of the soil. And he had taken his soils from about 1% carbon content and brought it up to like 24%. And he was, he had this six foot piece of rebar and he just shoved the whole piece through the ground. He just with his hand, he just pushed it in and went all the way in. And he was telling this story of how the, they had a 13 inch rain event and all of his neighbor's fields flooded. And he went out the next morning and there was not even a puddle in his fields. It, the land just like absorbed it like a sponge. And so, you know, if we can focus on how do we get all this carbon in our soil, our soils are so resilient that they can just, they, they can do so much better work for us. And uh, at least in my part of the world, I think tree crops are, are definitely the, uh, the answer for that, you know. So if we start to convert cornfields into chestnut orchards, what is that going to do for for a carbon cycle and what is it going to do for things like birds and butterflies and all kinds of wildlife so yeah that that's kind of the short of it so i wanted to let you know about something i kind of decided to kick off today i've been thinking about it for a while just kind of in uh in honor of your appearance on the show since we we're talking so much about trees today a long long time ago like almost 10 years ago i came up with an idea called the 10 percent project And the idea on that was to kind of send out a message to everyday America, not necessarily the people like us. Like, we are the messenger, and then there's the people that are not going to plant 100 trees or even 50 trees, and certainly not 1,000 trees. Uh, and what the 10% project was is getting people to plant productive trees uh, at a, a ratio of 10%. So if somebody has 10 trees in their yard, you know, plant one apple uh, as a minimum. And let's take 10% of all the trees that are in the suburbs, urban rural fringe, all of those places where people are putting a lot of money, honestly, into keeping a Bradford pear alive, which is like, uh, you know, like one of the more useless trees on planet Earth that about 15 years will just fall apart on you. Um, and let's yeah. put, let's, let's get people in the mindset of doing that. So my original idea was one of those way too complicated ideas where I needed a programmer to develop a database for sharing and all that. And I decided, you know, we've had so much luck with the Regen Ag group on Facebook. Let's just create a 10% project group on Facebook. And I still have the domain names, 10% project with the number 10 and 10 with it spelled out. So I just pointed both of those and I created a new group today on Facebook called the 10% project. Uh, we've already got like almost 40 members, I think, and, and that's going to be the focus of it, is getting productive trees planted by people that probably never would have planted them. And I just thought it would be mm. kind of cool to, to coincide that with your appearance on the show. Cool. That sounds like a great plan, Jack. Um, I think I think you're right. There's a lot of trees that just don't make a lot of sense, like you were talking about the Bradford pear, and then around here in the city streets, they've been planting uh, Zalkova trees which is this, uh, it's like a type of elm that, uh, it, it is like, it's just like a nothing tree. Like there's, it makes leaves, 
and carbon, but there's no birds or insects that can use it for almost anything. Um, so yeah, I think it's really important to to plant trees that that actually are are doing a lot of work uh, or providing a lot of services. Well, I think it yeah, sounds like a small really thing, cool. but I did the math one time, and if every if every owner occupied home would plant one tree, bush, or vine on average to produce something edible, it's five hundred thousand tons of locally produced food in the United States alone. That's if everybody did one. And when you think about uh-huh. it that way, that that is an enormous change in everything. I, I, you know, I've seen projects. I'm sure you've seen some of the projects, like Brad, Brad Lancaster did in um, in Arizona near Tucson, where they they cut the curbs and they put all these trees in, and they basically created local economies with trees. You know, in these neighborhoods, and so I think that there's a tremendous mm. opportunity there. I don't know how it'll turn out, but it's uh, it's worth a shot. And uh, like I said, yeah, I just thought it'd be a good a good show to uh, to kind of combine it with. Yeah, you never know like how how these things can turn out. But sometimes small small little efforts turn into huge deals. Uh, like I don't know if you have time. Go ahead. What's that? I was gonna say kind of like I don't time. Kind of like acorns into oaks, right? <laughs> right. Well, that, that was it. Just made me think of this, this short story. This there was this town in Wisconsin. That in the 1940s they lost all, all 100% of their trees were planted with uh, elms uh-huh. and uh, American elm, and they all got wiped out with uh, Dutch elm disease. And uh, so the town they decided to plant uh, another monoculture, but they planted sugar maples this time. And uh, but anyway, today the town is has all these mature sugar maples, and they have somebody from the town drives around all the neighborhoods with a uh, with a truck and. Uh, trailer on the back with a big water tank and he's ringing a bell like the ice cream truck and all the kids fill, they everybody taps their maple trees in the whole little uh, village there and every, and then they just fill up that truck and then they have a big boil uh, a community boil and then they and then they make all this maple syrup and they sell it and it winds up being like they have this big pancake breakfast and it's it's like equal to the amount of revenue they get from their taxes this this pancake breakfast thing that they do so uh it's pretty cool. You never know what happens when you start planting productive trees in uh, in neighborhoods. Absolutely, man. So tell people um, how can they get your book? Uh, where wh- where's your website at? All that good stuff. Well, it's uh, my name of my farm is Twisted Tree Farm, and if you Google that, I'm sure you'll find us. It's uh, twisted-tree.net. Uh, my book's called Trees of Power. You can buy it on our website, or you could buy it uh, from the publisher Chelsea Green. Or you could uh, go through Amazon if you want to do that. And uh, and then if you wanted to sign up for the propagation class, just go on our website and look up classes and workshops, and you'll see it there. Awesome. Well, I'll make sure there's links to all of that in today's show notes. And with that, hey, Akiva, man, well, uh, thanks for joining us today. It was really nice talking with you, Jack. Well, great interview. And, I mean, I can't tell you how much I like Akiva, really. I mean, he's one of these people that, you know, was concerned about something and wanted to make a difference and wanted to build something for himself and his family all at the same time, and he was willing to do the work to get it done. And he is, you know, really beginning to reap the rewards of all that work. And it's proof that it can be done and that there is more solution and action than being angry. And, and right now we live in a world where when it comes to environmental issues, all we have are people screaming at each other. 
Screaming at each other doesn't do shit. Taxing people doesn't do shit except take away people's money and screw things up. The government ain't going to fix nothing. Okay, There's nothing the government touched that it did not make worse. Everything the government touched got worse and got more expensive and more convoluted and screwed up. There's nothing that's gotten in the way of more people trying to do good things than the state. So there's no solutions there. There's no solutions in yelling at anybody. There's no solutions in taking sides. If you're concerned about our environment, if you're concerned about our future, plant an effing tree, and you know where to do it, or at least you know what to do when you do it, get on over to 10% Project. Yeah, the 10% Project, we've got that new group set up on Facebook. You can find it at 10percentproject.com. It'll redirect you there. You can write out 10 or put the number in. I got both domains all those years ago. And the reason I love the concept of this is there's people like us that will do an awful lot for no reason at all other than we want to. But something as simple as, hey, plant enough stuff on your land that 10% of it produces something edible for your family and is perennial, that's something everybody can do. The soccer mom can do, the yuppie can do, the hippie can it, it doesn't matter. Everybody can do at least that. And the difference, well, how about 500,000 tons of additional food produced right in people's backyards with almost no effort? We're already taking care of trees that don't do anything. We're already taking care of bushes that don't do anything. There's so many perennial plants that are used in landscaping that don't provide anything. We can do this, and this is one way. Also, again, I cannot recommend Akiva's book enough. Again, it's called Trees of Power, available on Amazon, and I do have a link in today's show notes. That brings us to another thing about Amazon, how you can uh, help the survival podcast and the work that we do, no matter what you buy, and that's when you're going to shop online, do your online shopping at Amazon. Now, I don't I don't know if at the time that I'm, I'm recording this, there's even any of these left. And there's probably not. Um, there's a brand of shears that I recommend called Red Yeti Wear Shears, and they're back under a new brand name. But there were only nine available when I posted the article for them this morning. And right now, and I'm pre-recording the intro and the exit of this show, um, there's only two. So I don't know if they're going to be back or not, but um, that was the item of the day today is these kitchen shears. Uh, if you look, if you get the email or you look up the website, you'll see there's another set of kitchen shears I recommend from a company called Fiskers. Love them as well, uh, but I'll I'll keep on this uh, with this product. the The kitchen shears I recommend these are the best kitchen shears I've ever touched. Um, I, I bought another set for myself as soon as I saw that they were back. Before I put out on the blog today that they were available, there were like. 10 available when I bought a pair for myself and uh, like last week and got them to make sure they were the same. And then there were like nine, you know, nobody else bought any, I guess. There were nine this morning when I posted on the blog about it. And just from the post alone before the email or anything went out, there's only two left. But, you know, that's just kind of a, a nod to T-SPAS and the people that have been shopping through T-SPAS for all these years that even when I just throw it up on the blog and put it out on Facebook, people buy stuff, and, and I'll tell you why. This is why you can trust my reviews. If it's on T-SPAS, I own it, I spent my money on it, and just like this, I would spend my money a second time. Now, I already have a pair of these, and, and I, I assume they're going to last for damn near ever. I've had them for years. Why buy another set? Because they're that good, and everything on T-SPAS is that good. So remember, just you can always help us by doing your online shopping at T-SPAS. I Should have came up with a contingency item of the day today, but I'll have something new for you tomorrow because I'm 
pretty sure by the time this goes out, they'll be gone. That brings us to our song of the day today. Um, song of the day today is called The Joker, because we're on Steve Miller Band Week. And I think this might be his most well-known song. The band, you know, Steve Miller is the guy, and then the band is the Steve Miller Band. So the Steve Miller Band's best-known song. Um, this is one of those songs almost everybody likes it. I think if you don't like this song, you just don't like music in general that is kind of like this. It's one of these mellow, relaxing songs that you know people love to sing together when groups get together. And what it makes me think of, and nothing, you know, a lot of times he shows and the songs fit really well. Nothing like that today. I'll tell you what it makes me think of. One of my favorite sitcoms of all time uh, was that '70s show. And I think growing up as a '70s and '80s kid, that's probably why. Um, but there's an episode where they're they're listening to this song and and they're all fighting over who would be the space cowboy. And, of course, everybody wants to be the space cowboy. Uh, and it just makes me think back to being a kid when, you know, instead of the complex issues that we dealt with today, we just knew how to have fun. And I would just throw that out for you. It's a good thing to care about big issues, like we talked about today, some of them. But it's also a good thing to not be so serious all the time and be able to enjoy your life because, again, no matter what we do, There's that dash between the year we're born and the year we die. And like I said yesterday, that dash gets a little smaller every day. And we do need to do meaningful, impactful things. We also need to enjoy life along the way. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that, bad, live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Some people call me the space cowboy. Call me the gangster of love Some people call me Maurice Cause I speak of the pompatists of love People talk about me, baby Say I'm doing you wrong, doing you wrong I play my music in the sun I'm a joker, I'm a smoker, I'm a midnight toker I get my love in all
Love it, love it, love it, love it all the time.